Hi, this is Richard from Short Films Teachers Love, which is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of individual hosts. Make sure you check out all the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com and get ready because the learning begins in three, two, one. Because every day I was dealing with discipline issues uh, beyond what I had ever seen. It was to a point where they were trying to see how mad they could make me. And so I was just a little bit beyond what I knew how to do. It, the thing, All the tools I had in my educational toolbox were not working. Welcome to the Burned In Teacher Podcast. I'm Amber Harper, and the educators on this podcast are brave enough to share their stories of burnout with the world. On BIT, we get real, we get honest, and we take action. Action against the burnout with stories from burned out teachers, advice from experts, and actionable steps you can take today to beat the burnout and become a happier, more fulfilled human being. Let's get started. Hello, Burned In Teachers. Welcome to the Burned In Teacher Podcast. I'm Amber Harper, your host, and this is, of course, one part burnout and all other parts action, inspiration, and support for teachers dealing with burnout. As you just heard in the intro, we're talking today to Dan Jones, and he had a serious situation with his students where he knew that something needed to change. I can't wait to share the interview with you, but first I want to reflect on last week's interview and podcast episode with Dr. Elmore. In the spirit of this month's theme of classroom management and poor student behavior is burning me out, he shared with us such great information using connection rather than control, equations rather than rules, empowerment over engagement. And I can't think of a better episode to follow it up with than Dan's interview today, but I would love for you to share on social media what it is that you're changing in your own philosophy of what classroom management is and how it is that you're making subtle or big changes to help you to connect with your students and create those relationships that therefore improve behavior. Don't forget to tag me at Burned In Teacher. And of course, jump into our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Burned In Teacher and tell us your story. We would love to join the conversation about your transformation and how you're going from burned out to burned in teacher. So let's talk about today's episode with Dan Jones. Dan has been teaching for 14 years and is currently a middle school social studies and RLA teacher at the Richland School of Academic Arts. He's a founding member of the International Faculty for Training Educators Globally regarding best practices in flipped learning. Dan's involvement with Flipped Learning Global Initiative led to his role as the K-12 editor for FLR Magazine. That's at flr.flglobal.org. And you're going to want to remember that because it is an excellent site for learning more about flipped learning. He actively collaborates with educators across the world to guide teachers as they implement flipped learning in their classrooms. His instructional methods were first written about in John Bergman's book, Flipped Learning for Social Studies Instruction. Dan also recently had his first book published by FL Global Publishing titled Flipped 3.0 Project-Based Learning, an Insanely Simple Guide. And I'm telling you today on the interview, Dan is going to explain to you how to implement flipped learning to increase engagement and empowerment in your students. And it really does sound pretty easy. Although also in this episode, Dan is going to share with us his struggle with feeling ineffective as he tried to teach students who weren't engaged at all. And as you heard in the intro, we're going out of their way to actually school him. He's going to tell his Cinderella story of transformation as he realized his passion for flipped learning and how he's turned from sage on the stage to the guide on the side in his classroom. I will tell you, this interview is a little long, so I'm not going to come back at the end with tips and takeaways because he does such a good job of laying out his story and, of course, how to implement flipped learning in your own classroom. Although I will, of course, have resources, tips, takeaways, and everything that Dan talks about in the show notes at burnedinteacher.com slash podcast slash episode 35. Let's jump into the interview. Dan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about what it is that you do now and how you got from, you know, beginning teacher to where you are now. Well, 
I started teaching back in probably, I think it's 2003. Things went really well. I set out with this passion of I'm going to be teacher of the year and I am going to be the best teacher that I can be. And then I actually got into a classroom and Mm -hmm. it, it was a lot harder than I realized it was going to be. Mm -hmm. And so I, I chugged along for about eight years and I finally said, you know what, maybe this isn't what I wanted to do. Did you, were you in the same position this all, this whole the whole eight years? No, I actually, I started out as a high school special ed teacher mm-hmm. and I was just on a temporary license for that um, because I was struggling to find a job. And so I finally landed on that. I was like, all right, this will at least help pay some bills. Mm-hmm. And, but it wasn't something I was super passionate about, which mm-hmm. I think um, really was part of the issue. And then I became a seventh grade writing teacher and then I, and that was all within the same district. Mm -hmm. And then I switched districts and I became a seventh and eighth grade social studies and language arts teacher. And that was awesome. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was like, okay, this is what I have always wanted to do. And this is curriculum that I love. And I was able to do things way outside the box um, because it was a small private school and I could really um, explore the content, I think, Mm -hmm. at a different level because my class sizes, I literally had an eighth grade class of seven students. Wow, that's a dream. (laughs) Yes. So I was going to ask you, but you may have already answered my question. When I talk to teachers in the Burned In Teacher Tribe program, and we're really, you know, beginning where, where they are. And we talk about our past. We talk about changes that have happened that maybe we didn't really realize had such a big impact on us and our burnout. Mm-hmm. So when you moved from one corporation to the other, what, and like I said, you may have already answered this, what was it that changed for you? Because you were still teaching that seventh, eighth grade age group. Um, yes. But was it administration? Was it, you know, was it the students? It sounds like maybe a mixture of both. Well, it was a little bit of both mm-hmm. because the the private school that I transitioned to, um, it was great. And I had very supportive administration. I had a very supportive curriculum director who really stepped in and said, you know what? Here are some things that you may want to try. Mm-hmm. She introduced me really to project based learning and um, Grant Wiggins and backwards design and all of that. And it was awesome. And the issue was for me, pay, because it was a small private school. I took a drastic pay cut, but I was also closer to home. Then I had an opportunity that came along to make a little bit more money at a different school. And so I would still be teaching seventh and eighth grade social studies. And so I took it. It was a completely different um, environment. I had very supportive administration, but I had very different students. Mm -hmm. Students I was working with, um, many of them were not successful at other schools. So um, I had started working at a public charter school. So a lot of our students had really struggled in the their public school. Mm -hmm. And so they came to us. That was really, really challenging because every day I was dealing with discipline issues uh, beyond what I had ever seen. It was to a point where they were trying to see how mad they could make me. And so I was just a little bit beyond what um, I knew how to do it. The thing, all the tools I had in my educational toolbox were not working. Mm. So did they succeed in seeing how mad the, they could make you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They they succeeded daily. <laughs> so what were some things? Can you give me some suggestions of what they would do? Because I know that a lot of the listeners are dealing with the same type of behavior based mm-hmm. on feedback that I'm getting from. I just sent out a survey not too long ago to my subscribers. And that, that is a lot of what I'm getting is the student behavior. Yeah. The, the students, they, they would even play a game of, um, they would stare at you and it didn't matter if you called on them, they would just stare at you and smile. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, I, I got to get somebody to respond, but I couldn't get anybody in the class to respond. 
to questions that I was asking, ways I was trying to engage the class. It, I would try to get somebody to answer a question, anybody, and they would just stare at me. And they thought it was such a game. And so then I, you know, I'd kick a kid out of class thinking, okay, that'll turn the whole class around. And it didn't. They, they just, they knew that they were winning because if I was kicking kids out, then I was getting mad and frustrated and they were used to people just quitting and leaving. And then they'd get a new teacher. So the fact that I stuck around, um, was different, but I still wasn't getting any buy-in from the kids. Mm -hmm. They just thought I was a tougher nut to crack. So were you their first teacher that school year or, or did you come in to take someone else's position during the school year that, that had already started? I, I started the year with them, but they had had a different teacher the year before. Okay. I actually came the second year the school had been in existence. Okay. So, um, and nice thing is we're now going on our 10th year and I'm still teaching at that same school, but I did make some modifications because I tried to quit. Mm. I went to my administrators um, and this was, like I said, after my eighth year. So I, I put in two years at the school. I said, okay, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I, I can't continue to do this. If this is the direction that education is going, then this is not for me. And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll just get an easier job. My brother sells insurance. I'll go work with my brother make more money doing less work and it'll be great. But yeah. That... So, so tell me, let's back up a little bit. So okay. I, you know, burnout in itself is not a, I call it a, it's not a lightning strike of realization. It is a slow, no. it's a, it's called burnout because it is a slow burn. So, mm -hmm. I mean, clearly I don't have to ask you <laughs> sort of <laughs> what put you on that path to burnout because I'm sure there was also some reflection on, my God, I had it so good at that other school. You know, I didn't realize how good I had it until I left. Was there any of those? Were there any of those thoughts going through your mind at all? There was, but yet there was also this like, as I'm standing in front of my students mm -hmm. and they're having a conversation with each other, it was like the, I could tell they could care less or they couldn't care less. <laughs> right. Um, about what I was telling them. Mm -hmm. They they had already checked out. They were more invested in each other than they were in what I was trying to teach them. I just felt hopeless. Like I said, it didn't matter what tool I tried to use. Nothing seemed to engage them mm -hmm. or work because I was trying to do all of these different things. I was trying to make fun lessons, come in costume. I was trying to... Um, do some projects with them, but they truly did not care. Mm -hmm. It was, it was not what they wanted. They didn't want to even be there. It, it was a serious struggle every single day. And so I felt like every day it was like chipping away at my soul mm -hmm. <laughs> and I really just didn't have a passion anymore. This episode is brought to you by the Renew, Recharge, and Reignite Teacher Wellness Retreat that my good friend Kim Strobel and I are co-hosting together. This two-day retreat is your chance to step outside of the classroom and step back into your life. You'll learn tips, tricks, and techniques for injecting happiness back into your teaching practice and your personal life. You'll leave burnout behind and walk away renewed, recharged, and reignited with courage and confidence to face next year's challenges. You'll learn five happiness habits to increase personal and professional positivity, methods for fostering relationships with students and coworkers, how to accept your past journey and make plans for changing your future path, and ways to rebrand yourself as an educator and human being, and much, much more. It will be held June 10th and 11th in Nashville, Indiana, a beautiful and quaint town in central Indiana. And I have to tell you, seats are limited, so don't wait to register. Go to bit.ly slash teacher retreat or burnedinteacher.com slash retreat to learn more today.
That was my next question. So what did that feel like for you? Because I'm sure a lot of the listeners too can relate to those different feelings that you have at night before you go to bed and in the morning when you wake up and Sunday evening, you know, and Thursday morning, you know, what is, what was that like for you? It was depressing Mm -hmm. on a pretty constant basis. I was not a happy person. I was not the person that I used to be. My uh, family missed me um, because I just I didn't have joy mm-hmm. um, and not that you need to have joy specifically from your job. And that needs to be the source of your joy. But when you can't enjoy what you do, especially as a teacher, that's supposed to be part of who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of part of your identity. You know, I am a teacher when that part of you lacks joy, it's going to affect every other part of you. It'll affect your relationships with other people. It really, it's not just going to impact you. It impacts other people as well. Mm -hmm. And so I did notice that um, it was alarming. So that's a good segue into now going back to where you said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm going to go and sell insurance with my brother. Right. You've told me in another setting what happened, but tell me a little bit about why you're still teaching today. Because well, typically when people say I'm done, they're they're done. <laughs> right. Right. So, I walked into my principal's office and I said, "All right. I am done. I can't do this anymore. I'm just letting you know that this year is going to be my last year." My administrator said, "Well, I, I'm sorry that you feel that way." but I'm not going to let you quit. And I was just like, I'm sorry. She said, Nope, not going to let you do that because you are a teacher and this is what you were made to do. And I said, but I don't know how to teach any other way. These kids hate me. They hate my lessons. They hate everything that I do. I'm not reaching them. I feel ineffective. And I think that that's a huge thing is that I felt ineffective. And if you feel ineffective at what you're doing, a lot of times you feel like, well, then I, I'm just terrible at my job and I need to find a different job. That wasn't necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that my administrators saw that and that they didn't allow me to quit. And what was interesting was they, when I said, well, how else do you teach? You stand in front of kids, you tell them what they need to know so that they can write it down, memorize it and spit it back on a test. So that was ultimately, that was ultimately your your method of teaching. That was your, that was your delivery method. It was, it was Mm -hmm. stand in front of them, tell them what they need to know. And if we can do a fun project, if we have time for, for that, awesome. But if not, I just need to make sure that they get content, that they can understand it and tell me that they know it. And even with a costume that didn't work. Oh no, no, (laughs) no. It just gave them something to make fun of me about. Right. Um, Right. (laughs) So, it was it was a situation where I said, well, I don't know how else to do this. And they, my administrator said, well, you know what? We don't have that answer, but you're going to find an answer to it. And I said, all right, well, I will look, but I'm not going to make any promises. And so I did. I went and looked online. I just typed into a search engine, new and innovative teaching methods. And it was kind of a passive aggressive way of going about it. And so one of the things that popped up right away was flipped learning. Hmm. And so when I read, the more I read about it, the more I was like, you know what, this actually makes sense. And it makes sense in the way that this is probably the way we should have always been doing school, but we've had it backwards for a very, very long time. So what were your next steps then? I mean, did you just consume YouTube videos? Did you, I mean, did you go to conferences? Did you go to a workshop? What is it? And maybe we should back up before even that. What is flipped learning for those teachers that don't know what it is? Well, flipped learning, if you think about it, just in the essence of the the words, it flips the learning. It flips where learning occurs and um, it focuses on how we're using our class time Mm -hmm. because 
so much of our time is spent on instruction when we're with students. Right. And I don't know about you, but I did not get into teaching to lecture. I no. wasn't like, you know what? passion for lecturing students and just telling them all these wonderful bits of knowledge. Mm -hmm. I got into teaching because I love working with kids. And that was what I never got to do because so much of my class time was spent talking at students instead of working with students. And flipped learning says, all right, we're going to take that lecture and we're going to move it to what's called the individual space. So that could be at home. It could be wherever the kids are outside of school. Mm -hmm. um, they could even do that on the bus. They could do it, you know, at the library. Um, but they're listening to that lecture, taking notes at their own pace. And it's not always lecture either. It could be that they're reading a mm -hmm. passage but they're consuming information in their individual space. So that the, when they're in the classroom, in that group space, when you're all together, they're actually doing something with that knowledge. Mm -hmm. And they can actually apply and they can work in that higher uh, blooms that we never have time for mm -hmm. in a traditional setting. So the lower portion of blooms that understand, remember, is what takes place at home because do the students need my presence to be able to take notes? No, they just need my voice or they need to see me. And, but if that can be done through a video or a podcast or, you know, whatever means you deliver that information, they can, they don't need my presence for that. So you are my and applying. Right. Exactly. And your guidance and your facilitation. So right. help me to understand and help other listeners to understand because I'm sure most listeners have heard of flipped learning, but mm -hmm. I can even feel it already, all of the questions, all of the doubts about how <laughs> this won't work for them. Sure. So first of all, let me make sure that I understand. Flipped learning does not mean a literal video of you only every single day, all five days of the week. It could be um, an excerpt from a book. It could be an article. It could be somebody else's blog post. It could be somebody else's YouTube video. It could be a voice recording. Give us some examples of what you use to flip your classroom. Sure. Well, there are videos, video instructions that I do where I stand in front of a board and deliver notes. But there's also, you know, I think all teachers have slide decks that they use, mm -hmm. a PowerPoint that you've made. And you're like, you know what, this is an awesome PowerPoint. And I don't want to give up my PowerPoints. <laughs> these are awesome because I put a ton of time and energy into these and my students will love them. Um, and the thing is, if you're going to read your notes to your students anyways, just give them the slide deck. Yeah. They're smart kids. Mm -hmm. They'll just give them the slide deck and they can take the notes. You can use programs like Screencastify and you can do a voiceover on your notes. There are tons of programs out there that you can monitor who's watching your videos, who's interacting with them. Um, I use a program called PlayPosit and I can even embed questions mm -hmm. into um, my video. So the video will actually pause ask the students a question. I know who answered that question, how long it took them to answer that question, whether they got it right or wrong. And so I have all this information walking into class the next day mm -hmm. and I can pull a student aside and be like, hey, you need to watch the video because yeah. I know you didn't. Mm -hmm. So there's that accountability piece there. So you are able to hold kids accountable because that question of, well, my kids aren't going to watch videos mm -hmm. at home. Well, that was my next question. Yep. Where do they do this? And what if they don't have a device or they don't have Wi-Fi? Awesome. You can actually, you can do what's called an in-flip. And so you can set up almost like a station rotation within your classroom. And I have a third grade teacher at my school that does that with math. She does an in-flip. So the kids, she'll still work with like a small group and they just rotate through and she's able to check in. But the kids are also able to self-monitor their pace. They know if they need to go back and rewatch a video because they weren't successful on 
um, the the quiz that happens at the end. And the thing is, there there are so many different components to flipped learning that make it as successful as it is, because you have to have an, a level of accountability when students are accessing information, you know, and how do you know that they're learning? Well, you have them take a short mastery check. If they didn't pass it, guess what? Go back and rewatch the video. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where it works so well with like standards-based grading and because you're working towards mastery, that's what you want the kids to do is master the content. Mm-hmm. And if you have a student that comes in and didn't watch the video, well, guess what? They're going to watch the video right now. Right. And they may miss the um, like group activity that you're going to do at the beginning of class, but you want them to watch the video. Mm-hmm. And if you have a student who's sick, there's no, well, you missed my lecture. I don't know how you're ever going to catch it, mm-hmm. you know. You weren't here that day. Well, now they have access to content all the time. That's fantastic. When I started doing a little bit of flipping in my first grade classroom like that, um, and if I would have stayed in the classroom, I would have gotten deeper and deeper and deeper into it because I loved it so much. And it actually made my job easier. It sounds oh, it like does. it might be a lot of work, but it's it's not. I mean, it's there's some work on the back end, like as you're starting it up and you, you build those mm-hmm. habits and procedures. But it just, I'm starting to call it evergreen. You've create, you create this evergreen procedure, these evergreen stations, these evergreen, evergreen, um, rotations for students. Um, and it just helps them again. I especially loved that if they were absent for whatever reason, that they had access to that content, no matter where Mm -hmm. they were, if they did in fact have Wi-Fi. Now, did you, I used Seesaw. To oh, yeah. Flip my class. I use I taught, it as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, and we were one to one. Are your students one to one? Is it BYOD? They, Bring your own device? What is um, it? We, we are one to one, but I do also allow students to um, have their phones in class mm-hmm. and use them as necessary because there are times where they want to be able to um, record. Because one of the things that Seesaw allows you to do is a voice recording Mm -hmm. over top of a picture. So they'll take a picture of what they've been working on and then they'll do a voiceover. And the great thing is it involves the parent because then their parent can see what they've done. Yeah. So you use Seesaw in your class too? I do. Oh, great. I sure do. That was my other question is what do you use? Um, Do you use Google Classroom, Canvas? Um, Do you use a mixture of some things? Um, But are, or are you just strictly Seesaw? Um, I use a mixture because I have a classroom website, mm-hmm. which is powered through Weebly. Weebly, it, it's an easy website creator because it's just kind of drag and drop different elements. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to know anything about coding or anything like that. Um, I think anybody can build a website for their classroom. And it allows me to store like classroom videos on it or links to my play posit videos. I can put reading material. I can put links to, you know, different websites that I want the kids mm-hmm. to explore. And so I can really have my entire classroom for the entire year already on the website. Mm-hmm. And the students know, okay, we're on this lesson, day one, here's my lesson. Mm-hmm. And I I did have one person, they they questioned me, they said, well, what do you do for kids that aren't reading on grade level. Mm, If you're sending home material for kids to read, what about the kids who aren't on grade level at all? Mm -hmm. I said, wow, that's a great question. Let me think about that and resolve that issue. And so what I did was I decided to record myself reading. And it was super simple. It just creates an MP3. You upload that to the website. And then the kids can click on the play button and they can hear me read the entire text to them. And I have students who read on grade level, but mm-hmm. they still like to have things read to them and they just follow along. I, I'm giggling because I'm 36 years old and I would still rather have somebody read something to me. See, there you go. That's the type and of reader that I am. I love to learn, but I would much rather consume through listening with mm-hmm. the book in front of me so I can highlight or with the article in front right. of me. I exactly. I much rather, pref- I, co- I comprehend better that way. So I can definitely relate to that. And I apologize. I, did I interrupt you? What else were you going no, to you're say? you're fine. So there's, I, I use all of these different um, 
media and I combine it together, Mm -hmm. but I give the kids one place to access it. Mm -hmm. And so they know we're going to go to the classroom website and it's got everything that I need right on it. Whether it's a template for how to write my essay, I just go there, I can download the template. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, it takes, it's taken me years to build because like you said, the, you know, that front end of planning a lesson you put all of that on there and you're building it as you go. Mm -hmm. And there are times when it can feel overwhelming because you're like, okay, I'm used to traditional lecture style, delivering all of that information to the kids. And now you want me to create things that they can access at home. It seems like it's a ton more work. Well, yes, it is more work at the beginning, but once that resource is created, if it's solid, you don't have to recreate it. You can just Next make it year. better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a teacher that I know, and she she makes different versions of her lessons. And she calls them like, she'll have an original and then she'll have like version 2.0 or <laughs> 3.0. And the kids know this is how many times you've redone this lesson. Oh, that's a They're brilliant like, oh, idea. We, original. we saw an original of yours. And that <laughs> is just really cool yeah. um, for them to know how invested you are in making your lessons better and whether you listen to your students and their feedback. And because you'll have students say, you know what, I did not understand what you're trying to say at all. And that's a cue that, you know what, I probably need to redo that lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really good model of process over product to, to see that you know, that their own teacher has had to redo things several times to get it right. And it still might not be right because I think, you know, our kids, I know my, my children, for example, they love to watch YouTubers and they only see that final product. They don't see all the work on the back end that goes to make that. Right. So and I, that simple fact that a lot of YouTubers mm-hmm. use a script. Mm-hmm. You don't see that script, Mm-mm. but they're looking right through a teleprompter they're, and they're reading that script. So it looks flawless. Right. And the other thing that I had to realize is my videos don't have to be perfect. There's not a single lesson that I have delivered in class when I was standing in front of my students that was ever perfect. Mm-hmm. So do I need to spend two hours editing and reshooting a video or do I need it by Tuesday? Mm-hmm. And so it you have to understand what your students are willing to put up with because they're w- willing to put up with your imperfections. Right. They like you. They like your imperfections. They like the fact that you're human and you're not perfect. And so if you are recording a video at home, or in the car and you're, you know, a dog barks, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if your child runs into the room, they like to know that you have children and that you have a family. So yes, like, I, I 100% agree. Um, they do. They want to know that you're another human being trying to connect with them as a human being. And mm-hmm. I, I always go back to this saying that done is better than perfect. And B minus is still passing. And that I get cringy kind of saying that to a bunch of teachers. And especially when we're talking about perfection and, you know, a lot of teachers classify themselves as a type A personality, therefore everything must be perfect. And I am, you know, looking at my own success as a measurement of my students' success, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, especially in the beginning, just go for it, you know, just, just try it, you know, and there's no harm in saying, oh, guys, I'm sorry, that didn't work out the way I planned. That's, that's how learning is. It's messy. And what better way to model that than trying some stuff out yourself with your students and saying, guys, it's not perfect, but we're going to try it and see what we learn. Right. And I like the uh, third grade teacher in my school, when she tried flipping, she was like, you know what, we're going to see how it goes. Then once she actually did it and she saw how the students took ownership of their learning and they said, you know what, you're right. I didn't master that topic. I'm going to go back and I'm going to redo it. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the behaviors that she was dealing with went away. That was my next question. Yes. What changed for you? Because I'm going to have you later on. I want you to go with step by step, just just in general, step by step, how you create a flipped lesson. But let's get to the why, which is how do we 
promote better behavior in our class. And I'm really hesitating and trying to stay away from this idea of classroom management, behavior management, because like like Dr. Desatel said a few weeks ago on the podcast that she was on, you truly cannot manage other people's behavior. You cannot control other people people's behavior. And so, but we can do things ourselves. There are things that we can control, such as the way we deliver lessons, the way that we teach, uh, the way that we think about our career. And there can be a, there can be effects from that. So what were the effects in your class because you changed your form of instruction? Because I flipped my class, the, the learning went from passive to active. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the students had something to do in class. Busy students create fewer discipline issues. When they actually have a purpose for being in the classroom, they are not as disruptive. It sounds weird that the busier your students are, the less chance they have of getting in trouble. Um, But it's true. And the other, there was something though that I really did differently that um, really was a game changer in the class. And that was, I released control of my class. It was no longer going to be about me and what I wanted kids to do and the lessons I was going to teach them. It wasn't going to be about me. And I told my students, I said, all right, guys, I'm done planning your projects. And I am not going to tell you how you're going to learn this material. I had a lot of confused looks. Mm-hmm. And I said, you guys are going to tell me how you want to represent your learning. And you're going to use what brings you joy. You're going to use your passions. And you're going to use that to show me that you understand content. And I had a student um, who raised his hand. Mind you, this student talked to me about Minecraft every single day mm-hmm. in class. And he said, so what you're telling me is I can use what I'm passionate about in school. And I already knew where he was headed with that question. <laughs> and I said, yes, you can. He said, now you mean to say I'm, I can use Minecraft for my project? I said, yes, you can. <laughs> And he said, so you're saying <laughs> I can play Minecraft in school because it's for my project? I said, yes. And all of a sudden you could see around the room little light bulbs going off for kids. They already knew. They already knew. Yeah. And they were like, this is, this is so awesome because now my project is unique. Mm-hmm. And so instead of me trying to differentiate a lesson for 30 other students, I had 30 students differentiating their own lesson because now they're in charge of it. That gets me excited just listening to what you're saying, because (laughs) right away that sounds like, oh, it's not as much work as me, you know, writing out these different lessons for each student or these different expectations for each student. It just, it already takes a little bit of that weight off. Hearing you say it that way, that you have 30 different students differentiating their own lessons. My next question when you say that, because it really does sound too good to be true. Mm -hmm. What can you describe for me if you have a unit of study or uh, a topic or a certain chapter out of um, your book or whatever, however it is that you plan your lessons, do they Mm -hmm. have, you know, a project per semester, a project per three weeks, a project per nine weeks? How does that work? Because it sounds like you could kind of it, it sounds like it could get a little bit messy if you don't have a plan for how to execute this release, you know, give them that freedom. Sure. What I do is I organize everything into units. Okay. And so we have a unit of study. It's really important to have an essential question. Mm-hmm. And so when you set up that unit, you have a driving question that you want the students to be able to answer by the end of the unit. And so what I do is 
because it's a unit, it's set up in two to three week increments. So I have students doing projects every two to three weeks. Okay. So what I do is I give them a rubric. On that rubric, it has the essential question, vocabulary terms, and topics that we're going to be covering. And so what I do is I tell the kids, go research. I want you to become an expert on these topics tonight. Mm-hmm. And so they, they will go home and they will dive into those topics. They will research that essential question. They'll come back the next day and we do what's called a design lab. And I um, have the students, they go through this process of exchanging information with one another. So they're learning from each other. So you have peer instruction going on. And what they're doing is they're starting a unit already knowing something. No one is going into this unit empty-handed. And if you think about all the times you've ever felt extremely successful in school, a lot of times it was because you already knew something. Mm -hmm. You already, it was already something you were interested in. You had previous knowledge on it. And so it came to you rather easily. So the students are being set up for success because they're coming in. They're already knowing something about the topic and they're building on that knowledge by interacting with their peers. Mm -hmm. And then I asked the kids, okay, based on what you know so far, what would be a really cool way to represent that? I already tell the students, I am not grading the amount of glitter that you use, whether you are an amazing artist. I'm not looking at any of that. I'm looking at content. Mm-hmm. I want to know if content is represented in your project. So that takes a lot of that anxiety off of students who already don't feel creative. Mm-hmm. But if they have a passion for something and there's something that really brings them true joy and they can use that, they're willing to take risks. Mm-hmm. And so you're, again, setting them up to be successful. And if they know you're not grading their glitter, they're not grading or you're not grading, you know, the bubble letters that they use, they're going to be focused on content instead of making it look pretty. Mm -hmm. The projects that I get, though, from students are absolutely amazing. And the amount of time that they invest into their projects, there's no way I could ever require that of students. Mm -hmm. I had a student, he spent 40 hours on his Minecraft world. Oh my goodness. And can you tell us what was the unit of study there? It was uh, uh, ancient Rome. And what he did was he literally went in and rebuilt Rome. He had his own Colosseum. He had temples, even down to the gutter system along the roads. And he was able to walk the students through. He did like a little video tutorial Mm -hmm. in which he walked students through it, explaining every aspect of Rome and why he designed it the way that he did. And do you remember what the essential question was for that particular unit? Um, it was, how has ancient Rome impacted modern society? So he was able to walk us through ancient Rome and talk about that. He was mm-hmm. able to talk about, okay, this is why we have roads. This is why we have concrete. And this is why we have football stadiums. So he's making all of these modern connections. Wow. As he's going through his project. Mm -hmm. I'm very familiar with understanding by design or that backwards design idea. Um, I was Mm -hmm. lucky enough to have experience with that when I was getting my master's and I used it in my classroom. And we, um, in my first school district that I taught in, um, we were we were introduced to the idea of backwards design and planning modules and lessons and essential questions and things like that. So, but for someone who's not, you actually start with that essential question and that unit of study in mind, and you probably then build the rubric before you build the lesson. Is that right? Yes, because you have to think about what do I want kids to actually know? Mm Mm-hmm. By the time that they're done, what should they know? Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, that is the perfect way to design the lesson. Mm -hmm. Because if you design it the other way, you have no idea where you're headed. It's kind of like if you were to just set out and drive, 
and hope that maybe you land at Disney World. Yeah, right. If you don't know that that's your actual destination and you just start randomly driving, mm-hmm. who knows where you'll end up? Yeah. And you want to say, okay, that's where I'm going. And this is how we're going to get there. When you do that, it allows you to prepare those lessons so that they're tailored to get students where you need them to go. Mm -hmm. But you allow them to express that understanding and express, you know, how they're how they're getting there. You know, what are the sites that they're seeing along the way? You're allowing them to express that in ways that are meaningful to them. And the students, um, I mean, if you think about when you take a trip, there are people who do scrapbooks. There Mm -hmm. are people who just post things on social media. There are people who um, love sending um, postcards. They're, you know, they have different ways of expressing their journey. Mm -hmm. And so we have to allow our students to express their journey with the content in ways that are meaningful to them, because then they have deeper buy-in to actually getting there to getting to that destination. That is a wonderful analogy and helping people understand um, why this changes behavior so much. So it, I'm sure that it's not all sunshine and rainbows though. Are, are there still times where you have to correct behavior or um, make sure that your expectations are met, you know, set those kids up for success in a you know, in a different way other than, you know, delivering this content in an appropriate way that helps them to create and to evaluate and analyze, you know, all of those blooms, verbs. But um, when you have a student who is off task, um, and I say when, assuming mm-hmm. that, you know, not everybody is engaged 100% of the time, what is the conversation that you have with your students versus, you know, uh, back in, you know, f- four or five years ago? I mean, how long ago did you start this flipped, flipped lesson idea? One of the things that has changed is the simple fact that I now have actual relationships with students. Mm-hmm. I, I have time to invest in kids and get to know them. When I look at what's going on in my classroom, one, I'm moving around the classroom and I'm having micro conversations with students. I'm checking in with them, seeing how things are going because there are students who need you to check in. Mm-hmm. And there are kids who you could not check in and they would just go and do awesome all on their own. But that's not everybody. Mm -hmm. There are kids you definitely have to check in and say, hey, how's it going? Are you making progress on your project? Um, And really helping guide them through the process. Because truly you are that guide on the side working with kids instead of being um, on that stage telling everybody how things are going to be done. Mm -hmm. You're working individually with kids. And if there's a student that I know has, because we, we all have students that have, you know, trouble focusing in on what their project and they get distracted easily. And so you have to redirect, but now I have time to redirect. Right. And that redirection impacts that singular student. Mm -hmm. I can, I can tell that student, Hey, I need you to get back on track. The other kids who are doing just fine are doing just fine. Right. They, they don't need class to stop. They don't need all the learning to come to a pause so that I can deal with this situation over on this side of the classroom. Everybody gets to keep working and I get to interact with that individual student. There are kids that are like, you know what, Mr. Jones, I'm, I'm having trouble figuring out how to represent this content within my project. And then we can sit down and we can problem solve and we can really look at it and evaluate what would be the best way based on their ideas of how we could represent that information. Mm-hmm. How do you sum up a unit? How do you, if you're doing this, this flipped lesson design and the students have these projects that they're working on based on their own interests and, and passions, how do you assess for that learning? Is it all rubric based? Um, because I can, I can already hear the questions of, yeah, that sounds all nice and pretty and, and fun. But at my school, we have to give these assessments. We have to test the kids. I don't have a choice. I have to give this test. What is it that you would say to them? Or what does that look like for you? There are still assessments that go on because I have students 
they they do their projects, but they're also writing a paper. And so I break up the time and it flip learning. One of the things it really does is it teaches kids to time manage mm-hmm. because they have to spend some time on their project. They have to spend some time on their paper. They have to spend some time on their presentation because they have to present their learning. They have to present their uh, projects to the class. Mm-hmm. And there are some students, one that that terrifies. And so what I do is I allow that student to present to just me at lunch Mm -hmm. because I still need to give them multiple ways of expressing their understanding of the content. Because as educators, we know not every child tests well, right? They, they don't function um, as test takers. They still know content. And if you just had a conversation with them, man, would they be able to impress you with what they know, Mm -hmm. but you just give them a, a test and they may fail it. And you're like, well, you don't know anything. No, they're just poor test takers. Right. So we do have to give them different ways of expressing their understanding. And if you can have a conversation with that child, if they can present information to you, if they can do it in written form, um, there's also mastery checks that you have them do along the way Mm -hmm. so that you don't have to do this huge assessment that is pass or fail at the end of a unit you can take these micro assessments throughout the course of the unit for them to demonstrate mastery. Right. And that's one of the things that I love is that if a student doesn't do well on one of those, mm-hmm. one, I immediately know where they're at in their understanding. And before I allow them to get to the end of a unit and find out that they don't know, we can pause right there and we can say, all right, why don't you back that up and try it again? Mm-hmm. Go back, look back over the content. And we're going to take that assessment again. And then before they ever move on, you know that they know that content. Right. Do you ever do any pre-testing or anything like that with the exact questions that are or similar to the questions that would be on the test? That's what I did with my, my really when I started to really understand this um, this type of, you know, this backwards design and pre-testing, post-testing, um, essential questions, essentially. But. I was like, why am I waiting till the very end to see if they know the content? Why why don't I see at the beginning if they know the content? And that way, if they get it wrong, there are my small groups. There are my one-on-one um, conferences. You know, I am helping them to pass the test by identifying, first of all, what it is that they don't know already. Well, and the other thing I think that we don't value enough within the classroom is conversation. Mm-hmm. We we tell students all the time, you need to be quiet. Sit, listen, don't talk to the other kids in the class. Because if you're talking to them, you're not learning. Instead, we need to capitalize on that and say, you know what? Let's get into conversation and allow kids to talk. And one of the first things that kids do when they come into the class is they grab a turn and talk card. Mm-hmm. And the turn and talk card, it's a set of four questions, and those questions truly don't change. They're the exact same questions every single time. It's what did I learn the night from the previous night's lesson? Mm-hmm. And so then they have that conversation. And then they say, well, what are the big ideas that we need to take away from that? And they have that conversation. Then they, the next question is, well, what questions do I still have? And so then they are able to talk through that. And the great thing is if one student has a question, And they're talking to their peer about that. And their peer is like, well, but this is what I got from it. And this is how I would have answered that Mm, question. mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the amount of questions within the class dwindled next to nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's not a matter of, you know, when you say, all right, class, who has questions? And you get all these random questions of, can I go to the bathroom? What times, you know, when, what's for lunch today? (laughs) You get these very precise questions that have specifically to do with the content from the night before. Mm -hmm. And if I'm getting those questions in class, that means more than one person didn't understand it. Right. Right. And so it's stuff that we need to talk about as a whole class. And the kids are even able to make connections as to, well, how does this connect to things that we've already learned? Mm -hmm. And so then when they start in on the, the writing and the project, I know that they're starting off with accurate understanding. Right, right. And they're able to sort of um, 
kind of check their own understanding against somebody else's, therefore learning to give each other feedback, therefore yep. learning how to defend your reasoning, which is, it's just a skill we all need. <laughs> yep, absolutely. In, in real absolutely. life. So uh, two more questions. Number one, if you had a student, or I'm sorry, if you had a teacher that walked up to you and said, I want to do this, where do I start? What would you suggest Perfect. to them? Great question. Um, I would definitely direct them to the Flip Learning Global Initiative. Okay. And that is uh, John Bergman, who started flipping um, the whole flip learning movement. He was, you know, a true pioneer in it. That is his organization. It has training that you can take. There's different levels of certification that you can get. So there's... Um, there are forums on there. So there are teachers from all over the world. And this is one of the things that I found to be most impressive is there are teachers literally from all over the world. I've connected with teachers from New Zealand, Australia, Spain, um, Iceland, Iraq, um, the Canary Islands, as well as throughout the United States of people who are doing this in their mm -hmm. classrooms mm -hmm. and the different strategies that they're using and learning from them. I have never come across a more positive and encouraging group than flipped educators uh, who are on FLGI's website, and they just want to help people. They're so excited about flipped learning. They're so passionate about They just want to help people mm -hmm. and help do it better. And so there's not this like, oh, I'm doing it wrong, and that's a terrible idea. It's like, all right, how can we work with that idea? How can we take that and make it better? What are some things that are working for you? And how can I learn from you as opposed to, you know, so often there's, you know, that negative of you're doing it wrong mm -hmm. sort of feeling. And that's not anywhere that I've ever seen on the, the forums that are there. And there are forums for mastery, project-based learning, gamification, wow. uh, inquiry, professional development, all sorts of things. You just, if you, there's something you're interested in, by golly, I guarantee you that there's already a forum for it and hundreds of teachers that are already talking about it. Oh, and so great. it's a great place to start. And like I said, they have certification courses mm -hmm. and they released something here recently that I do believe was a game changer for flip learning. And they created like a periodic table of elements of this is what makes up best practices for flip learning. Because I think that's one of those terms that teachers throw around a lot that mm -hmm. we really don't know what it means is best practice. We like to think that everything that we do is best practice <laughs> um, because that's why we do it. What they did was they had a hundred different teachers in I, I forget how many different countries, but it was like almost 50 different countries working together to create this chart. It's set up, you know, just like families of elements. So you have the group space elements, you have the individual space elements, there's higher ed elements, and you're able to look at those and evaluate your own classroom. And just like you would go to the doctor for a checkup mm -hmm. and say, you know, my blood pressure is great, but my cholesterol isn't. You're able to look at this and say, well, my group space is awesome, mm -hmm. but the individual space is struggling. Mm -hmm. And here are different elements that I need to include in the individual space so that it is more successful. And so it is an absolute game changer to be able to look at this and identify very specific areas that would improve my effectiveness in the classroom or my effectiveness in the individual space how I'm interacting with parents, all this stuff is all on this element chart. So there's so much, even if you're not a flipped educator, to go there and understand what best practices are mm -hmm. is huge. And to know that you're not just making this stuff up. This is um, research-based and it's been vetted by all of these educators around the world to be necessary elements for a successful flip class. That's so exciting to hear. So do you offer any resources to teachers also to kind of walk them through this process? Or do you have any examples that you've shared out anywhere? Um, well, I did write a book. 
It's called Flipped 3.0 Project-Based Learning, an insanely simple guide. It walks teachers through how to set up a flipped project-based classroom. Just as the title suggests, it's an insanely simple way of doing this. I I put in a a chart on like how to plan Mm -hmm. for a flipped lesson. And what does a a two-week plan look like? What do you have them do the first week? What do you have the kids do the second week? Um, There's different... I go through my design lab and that, you know, why that's so important Mm -hmm. and how do you get kids to talk about content? There's so much in there about, you know, student choice and why giving students choice matters. Mm -hmm. The, um, another resource that people can go to is FLR magazine. It's an online, it's free it's flr.flglobal.org. You can go there and you can read up on flipped learning. And there's just a ton of information. You can look at all the back issues. And that's something that I write for every month. Um, the listeners, they can go there and they can, like I said, we've been doing this for a year now as far as publishing the magazine. Mm-hmm. So there's a ton of content. And like I said, it's from educators all over the world. Wow, that is so inspiring. So exciting. I can't wait to check it out. And of course, we'll have all the links to every single resource you have mentioned throughout this episode. So I want to end this with one more question. A teacher approaches you or you overhear a conversation about a teacher saying, you know, gosh, all these ideas are so good. My my student's behavior is so out of control. They could not even handle this. Mm -hmm. What what do you say to them? Well, I would ask them if their classroom is student-centered and if it's passive or active. Mm -hmm. And if... If they would say that they're the one who's trying to control the learning within the classroom, a lot of times that discipline that we face is a power struggle. You have students who feel like they have no power and they're trying to gain power. The moment I turned my classroom over to my students and said, you tell me how you want to learn this, all of a sudden the power struggle shifted and they realized that they didn't have to fight me in class. They were empowered to take learning into their own hands and get out of the class what they put into the class. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't me trying to pull things out of them. It was what were they investing into it. It's interesting that you say that because in, um, in April, the Burned in Teacher podcast theme was all about trauma, trauma in students' lives, trauma-informed instruction, uh, trauma that you're going through in your own life as a teacher. And it's interesting that the conversation shifted to power a lot of times and what you can and cannot control. And I think this (laughs) coincidentally really works well with that idea of trying to co-regulate working together, trying to understand, you know, allowing, you know, building those relationships. And that just all really, it's interesting to me how those things weave together, Mm -hmm. how, you know, your instruction really weaves with your relationships and that, that power struggle really kind of, it, it goes back to what it is that you have or have not done to really get to know the kids and help them to, um, understand how this learning is really relevant and how it's relevant to them, not how not how it's relevant to you, you know? Right. So I think that all, I I just think this is going to be very, very helpful in, in helping teachers how to understand how we can really support those kids, even if they're coming from a traumatic home life or, you know, they have experienced things that, that teachers cannot really relate to, how we can learn mm. more about them through the content, coincidentally, Right. And take care of the the behavior issues that they're having in the classroom. Right. Because now that I have the time to actually go around my classroom, Mm -hmm. I can get to know kids even better. Mm -hmm. And I can touch base and say, how are things going? Yeah, that's great. They know they know I'm not talking about their project. They know I'm talking about them Mm -hmm. and they know that I'm invested in them. And it's not a matter of just being focused on their academics, but it's about being focused on them as a person. When students realize that you care, and I, I know that there's that cliche saying of students students don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, mm-hmm. but it is absolute truth is. in that they do need to know that you care. They do need to know that you are invested in them as a person before they will ever become invested in what you want them to do. 
Mm-hmm. And when the students know that you are invested, they work hard for you. They, they will give you absolutely everything. They will stay up late working on their assignments for you. They will put in extra hours for you because they know that you are there for them. One of the things too that I've started doing here recently just to check in on kids is I have them give me a number between one and 10 Mm -hmm. as to how they're feeling in the morning. So when I do my lunch count, I just say, all right, what's your number? And I have kids that come in there like I'm a two today. And automatically I know who I need to have conversations with. Mm -hmm. I, I know, okay, you had a rough night or you've had a really rough start to your morning, I'm going to give you some space, mm-hmm. let you, you know, wake up a little bit. And I have kids that come in, they're like, I'm a 10. And I know they're going to be a rock star that day. Mm-hmm. And you, it just really helps you to gauge your class and they know that you care. Mm-hmm. And it really helps build those relationships that are important to the success, I think, of any class. I think that's such a great idea. Well, Dan, I think we're going to wrap up this interview with one more question. And that is, do you feel the burnout anymore? I don't. You don't? No. It's, I've never been as passionate as I am right now about my classroom, about what I'm doing, the impact that I know my classroom can have even on a global scale. That's incredible. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Yeah. I mean, just so, so many huge truth bombs and knowledge bombs dropped on us today <laughs> about flipped learning. So I'm going to have all the resources in the show notes. Um, we'll have, of course, I'll, I'll outline the steps and that you shared with us and also have links to your book and the website. And oh my gosh, just I, I'm so excited to share this episode with the listeners because there really is a correlation between how you're instructing and how the kids are behaving. And those are Absolutely. some those are some gut check questions that we have to ask mm-hmm. ourselves and to be really reflective on our own practices and how it's influencing the behavior of our kids. Well, thank you for allowing me to come on and share my passion um, and my journey of going, you know, from burned out mm-hmm. to passion. Yeah, and it really did start with you taking initiative and and your administrator for pushing you to say, no, try something different because if right. you don't do something different, you're not going to get different results. So right. that I good for you. And gosh, you're just you're so lucky to have had that administrator that pushed you to try something new rather than just saying, OK, see ya. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again, Dan. Have a good night. All right. Thank you. You too.